This is part three of our proximity series. The title of today's message is Through a Glass Darkly. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even also, even as also I am known. Proximity part one uh, was based on our closeness, which is basically what proximity means in uh, spatial relation to God. We talked about as we draw near to him, there is a brokenness factor that takes place. We highlighted the woman with the issue of blood. Uh, we highlighted a couple other people that as they drew near to God, near to Christ, uh, their robes of pride would, would fall off. Their position wouldn't matter. Their status wouldn't matter. And the closer they got, the more they realized they needed him. And they fell down on their knees and they, and they asked for what it was that they needed. They cried out in some cases as he walked down the street, blind Bartimaeus. Jesus, thou son of David, as he's walking by, Zacchaeus climbing the tree. I mean, there's just something that happens when Christ draws near. There's a brokenness factor, and we use Rosh's limit uh, as a celestial example to show that when uh, small bodies draw closer to large bodies, the gravitational pull should be more than they could bear and break them apart. And God being the creator of the universe, we assume these laws work in the natural, the way they work in the spirit. Why do we assume that? Romans chapter 1, verse 20, where God says the invisible things of the world, everybody say spiritual laws, because you can't see spiritual things. The invisible things of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that he made. Everybody say creation. creation. Even his eternal power. Now, what, what is on display in this world that he made that can describe his eternal power? I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to find a physical object that God created to express His eternal power. Do you know of anything that lives forever? Do you know of anything that lasts forever on this planet? Physical things, they don't. But God's power is on display in astrophysics and even quantum mechanics out there in the world of forces that do exist always. Electromagnetic force, gravity, strong nuclear force, weak nuclear force. We are going to get... Just a smidge scientific today, so get your science hat on. We'll try to keep it fun, we'll try to keep it light, but I make no promises. So, when we talk about proximity, and we talked about the spatial relation, we use gravity because it, it, it always exists. You want an example, just jump off your chair. You, you can't make yourself go up. You're going to go down. It's always here. Gravity's always around. And it shows us God's power because it has an attractive nature to it, but it also has an explosive nature to it. And so we compare that in proximity part one and how we need to be broken before the Lord. Proximity part two, we talked about our relationship to God, our closeness to God as far as timing goes. And if you don't know, in the Bible, uh, it's expressed in many different ways. Timing is so important. Timing is everything. Doing the right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing. It's the right thing at the right time is the way that God operates. It's the reason why he doesn't answer your prayer right when you pray it 99.9% .9 of the time. He's got an answer for you and he's got it ready 
but he's also going to give it to you at the right time. So what we talked about was, can we miss that? And yes, we can. If we grow so fond of our chronological time scale in the Greek, the chronos that we talked about of the Bible, that we fail to enter into his kairos, which is the other Greek word for time, that is a, a, that is a specific moment on a chronological time scale of a major event. So we've kind of measured our proximity in spatial relationship and a time-based relationship. Today, we are going to measure our proximity in relationship period, how we relate to God, our closeness to him in relation to who he is. Theory of relativity type stuff, so to speak. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11 again. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child, I thought as a child. And what Paul is referring to here is our relationship and how we relate to God, our Father. Do we relate to Him in childish ways or do we relate to Him in grown-up ways? Now, it's good to have childlike faith. That just means you kind of believe God without questioning the way my kids believe me when I tell them something. Like, if you go to bed right now, I'll give you a cookie in the morning. My hope is they don't remember that. I honestly don't want to give them a cookie. And they, but they believe it because I said it. And inevitably, they wake up and the first word out of their mouth is cookie. And then I have to give them a cookie. Childlike faith. They just believe it because you said it. Daddy's good. Mommy's good. I believe it. So that's good. But there's other things about God and about his people that we need to, we need to learn how to grow up and think like adults. And that's what we endeavor to do at Edgewater Church is to help you grow past any kind of religious uh, conception or presupposition that you have based on a surface level teaching of good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell, and this is how we be good and this is how we don't be bad. That's actually not even in the Bible. So we're all bad and we all have the option of heaven and hell. So your goodness can't get you there, only his sacrifice can. Anyway, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, Paul says, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even also as I am known. So what Paul is expressing is that on the other side, all things will become clear. All things will become known. But on this side, we still see through that glass, but we see through the glass darkly. And I'll, I'll explain to you what that means in Greek terms. It's, it, that doesn't mean that we just stop and wait. That doesn't mean that we accept Christ and then we go back to our lives because we'll never fully understand everything until we get to the other side. What that means is God is asking us to look into that mirror, look into that dark glass and figure out as much as we can figure out now, do as much as we can do now, realizing that we'll have it all figured out on the other side. But what a child would do is say, okay, well, then I'm going to go live my childlike life. What an adult would do is say, I'm going to endeavor to grow in him. It's hard to grow in him on the other side because he's going to reveal all things, but we can grow in him now. Development. Now, this is interesting when you look at it in the Greek. For now, we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. That word glass in the Greek is actually the word mirror. And what it is speaking of, it, it actually is least likely of all the materials that they could possibly make mirrors out of that this Greek word at this point in time is referring to glass. 
Their mirrors would, in fact, this word has a connotation of steel, uh, but a lot of their mirrors were made out of bronze and other type metals. And they would polish them as best they could, and they'd look into them, and they'd see their reflection. So where we see through a glass, darkly in English, in Greek, a better rendition would be, for now do we perceive things in a mirror. For now do we perceive things in a mirror. Are any of you familiar with what the Word of God relates to a mirror in God's Word? A mirror is also what? Dun, dun, dun. Uh, the Bible is referred to as a mirror. A man who looks into a mirror, then walks away and forgets what manner of man he is. Don't be a hearer of the word only, but be a doer. For those that are not doers are likened to a man that looked into a mirror and then walked away and forgot what manner of man he is. So when you look into the word of God, what you're supposed to see is a reflection of yourself. And if it's not a reflection of you now, hopefully it's a reflection of who you're going to be. So when he says, for now we see through a glass darkly, on another level he's saying, for now do we perceive things in a mirror, now do we perceive through the word of God. The most that we can perceive. What's interesting about a mirror is that all images in a mirror are what? Reversed. Right? They're all backwards. How interesting... Since we serve a God who says, I understand the end from the beginning, what has been shall be no new thing under the sun. History repeats itself. He even gives a description in the book of Ecclesiastes that the wind travels along its circuits and comes back to where it starts. The same with the rivers that flow into the sea. And then they go back into the clouds and they rain down into the rivers again, so on and so forth. It's a cycle. What has been shall be. God works in reverse. You are strong when you're weak. You will receive when you give. You are exalted when you are humbled. Right? Everything that God does is opposite of what we think would work in the physical realm. We serve a God who is backwards. He wrote his language backwards. Hebrew reads from right to left. Amen. Pastor, there you go. <laughs> I love you guys. So when he says we see through a glass darkly, he's saying when you look into the word of God, you see things in reverse. This is going a little bit deeper uh, than you hopefully average uh, what you'd get out of some of these scriptures. When it says darkly, that word darkly actually means mystery. You can kind of see how they relate. You know, in the dark is always a mysterious place. What is very interesting is when you get that Greek word that means mystery and you break it down to its root, it means praise. So when Paul says we see through a glass darkly, he is saying in the Greek language, it can be written for now do we perceive things in a mirror as a reverse and praiseworthy mystery. That's pretty awesome. So what does that mean for the rest of the sentence? But then face to face. Now, what is the. What is the only way to perceive a mirror image without the mirror itself? Is if you stand across from somebody. 
that's identical to you and you look at them face to face. So my dad, who is uh, much better looking than myself, but I like to think that I look like him a little bit. Amen. If, <laughs> different example. If, uh, <laughs> if, I, if, if I looked more like he did, it really doesn't matter if we look exactly alike. The point is, my left arm is over here, but his left arm is where? Don't get this wrong. Where's your left arm? Raise your left arm. Boom. See? It's on, it's on the opposite side. Who put that there? It's on the opposite side. So it's the same kind of concept when you're looking at somebody face-to-face as a mirror, except there's another human being involved. So what Paul is saying is, for now do we look into the Word of God and we perceive things as in a mirror, a reverse praiseworthy mystery, but then will we see the Word of God face-to-face? And instead of seeing ourselves and just an obscure version or vision of Christ, in other words, when you look into the mirror of God's word or you look into a mirror in real life, hopefully if you're a Christian, you're seeing a partial reflection of Jesus Christ, but a very lackluster reflection because that sinful nature of your own is still there. So you're not wholly Jesus, but hopefully you're partly Jesus. So you're seeing an obscure vision of him when you look at you in a mirror. But when you stand face to face, Instead of yourself being present and an obscure vision of him, you'll be looking directly at him, seeing a full vision of him and just an obscure vision of yourself. So now Paul says, we are coming into the knowledge of, but then we will thoroughly know even as he knows us. So let's read that scripture again and with that understanding for now we see through a glass darkly in other words now we see in the mirror of god's word a reverse praiseworthy image of him trying to live and work through us still mostly us that we see but hopefully more of him every day but then will we see more of him and less of us face to face Because now I only know in part, but then shall I know even as I also am known. That is a big statement. God says, I knew the number of hairs on your head before you were in your mother's womb. We get to the other side. We're going to know him like that. We're going to know his word like that. You're going to open up the Bible on the other side. And you're going to immediately know the Hebrew word for that word, every letter meaning in that Hebrew word, every numerical meaning behind the letter, every deep meaning, every symbolism, every hermeneutic, every tying together, all of the eschatology. It's all going to make perfect sense for the very first time. And you and I get so excited just when we pull out a little seed of truth that we hadn't seen before. When we get on the other side and it all comes together, (sighs) duct tape, please. My head is going to explode. So I'm not sure exactly all the activities that happen in heaven, but I don't know how long it's going to take me to get over that one. I think that one's going to last for a while. Every time you flip the page, your head explodes. Man, that never gets old. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Now, I want you to also understand 
when he says, or what I'm saying, I'm sorry, how to describe, uh, we see only an obscure vision of him because the, the, the reverse, the mirror, is still a bit mysterious to us. And when we get over there, we'll see more of him and our own identity will become a mystery, which is a good thing. I want you to take that away and kind of, kind of lock that away while we, while we continue on here. We're going to be in Acts chapter 17, verse number 24. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwells not in temples made with hands. I want you to, to catch the, uh, the commonality that's running through the scriptures that we're going through this morning. All right. Underneath the surface of everything we're going to read, there is the notion of illusion. So God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwells not in, temple made, not in temples made with hands. He appears to. We build the temples for that reason, but he doesn't really. Neither is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he gives life to all and breath to all things. He gives life to all and breath to all things. Verse 26. He has made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell in the face of the earth and has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. That they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him. Everybody say feel. And find him. Everybody say seek. seek. Though he be not far from every one of us. So there's the illusion. You have to feel around. You have to seek. And you can spend your whole life doing it. But he's right in front of you the whole time. I'm going to the temple to find him. But he doesn't dwell there. It looks like one thing. But it's actually another. When you look into a mirror. You see things in reverse. It's all an illusion. Verse 28. For in him we live. Everybody say live. live. In him we move. Everybody say move. move. In him do we live and move. How big is God? Infinite, right? Infinitely big. How big is this room? I don't want to expect you to answer. It's kind of rhetorical. <laughs> it's definitely not infinitely big. We're going to go through some things we've gone through before, but we're going to come to a different conclusion. <laughs> As certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. In him do we live and move and have our being. That means our lives should be infinite. Our movement should be infinite. And our being should be infinite. It doesn't appear to be that way. This is assuming that we take the word of God literally, which we do. Verse 29. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like gold or silver or stone or graven by art or any man's devices. In the time of this ignorance, God winked at, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. In other words, what I feel like God is saying on maybe a different level in this portion of Scripture in the book of Acts is he's saying it's time to turn from your childish views of who God is and what God is and realize that God is not something you can structure with your hands. You can't chip an image of God out of gold or wood. You can't paint an image of God onto a canvas. God is nothing like you think you know. Everything in this life that you've ever been able to approach, you've been able to approach it through your five senses. And God cannot be approached through those five senses. You cannot touch him. You cannot taste him. You cannot feel him. You really can't hear what he really hears, what he sounds like. And you definitely cannot see him. No man has ever seen God at any time, the Bible says. 
So it appears as though in our human form that we're able to approach God, but that's the illusion. The human form really can't approach God. The Bible says flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom. Flesh and blood, it says, shall not glory in his presence. Not allowed to. Yet we pray for the presence of God in our flesh and blood state. Are we, are we seeing the illusion? Or at least seeing the novelty of illusion in the scripture? So what does it mean that in him we live, in him we move, and in him we have our being? Remember, we're talking about proximity, seeing through a glass darkly, and how we relate to God. Zeno was a philosopher, and he was a famous philosopher, and one of, it's called uh, Zeno's Last Paradox, I think is what they call it, where he would take his students and try to um, get them to think a little bit outside the box and realize a truth that maybe they haven't realized before. Um, at this point, I'm going to have to ask my mom to close her ears, please. Close her ears. She does not like this example. She doesn't believe in it. Um, and there's a gear, it's, it is philosophical, but... At the end of the day, what Zeno said was it's impossible to travel from this side of the room to that side of the room. The reason that it's impossible to travel from this side of the room to that side of the room is because there are an infinite number of steps between here and there. And you might say to yourself, well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard because I'll get up right now and walk from one side of the room to the other and punch Zeno in his silly little face. <laughs> but he said, hold on, before you get violent, let me explain what I'm trying to tell you. It's a... Um, it's a type of sequencing that he said, if you needed to go, let's say from here to there is, uh, I don't want to sound stupid. How, how far is it from here to there approximately? Would be a good number. 30 feet. That's what I was going to say. Okay. So if we're stupid, we're all stupid together. That works for me. So 30 feet. He said, well, if you're going to travel 30 feet, first you'd have to travel 15 feet. Yes, you are correct, Mr. Zeno. Well, if you're going to travel 15 feet, then first you have to travel seven and a half feet. Yes, that's correct, Mr. Zeno. And let's just cut it down to six. You're going to have to travel six feet. Right. If you're going to travel six feet, you have to travel three feet. Right. If you're going to travel three feet, you have to travel one and a half feet. Right. If you're going to travel one foot, 12 inches, you're going to have to travel six inches. Right. If you're going to travel six inches, you're going to have to travel three inches. If you're going to travel three inches, you're going to have to travel one and a half inches. If you're going to travel one and a half inches, blah, 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 blah. Every single measurement can be cut in half. Can always be cut in half. If you're ever going to go from point A to point B, you first have to travel at least half that distance. And half that distance is a distance of its own. And you're going to have to travel half of that distance to get there. And now that new distance is another distance which you're going to have to travel half of. So on and so forth. The reason why you eventually just come to a stop is because your feet are too big to travel those little microscopic distances that we start getting to. But your ant, your, the, an insect ant, is, if you were to think of it like you have an ant, I don't know why I said that, but if you do, it's your ant, I guess. It's God's ant. Anyway, so an ant can travel... Ah, Zeno, an ant can travel uh, a lot smaller steps than you and I, so can continue to cut it down and keep trying. And the point is, uh, he's, he's basically showing that inside an infinite space, I mean, inside, inside of a finite space, you can, you can have an infinite uh, journey. And that's technically true. And it kind of blows your mind because then you're like, that, 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 that technically is true. So how in the world am I able to walk from one side of the room to the other? I shouldn't be able to do that. And so he wanted to freeze them in place so they didn't know what to do. Like, they didn't know where to go. So if I go there, I'm not really going there. It must be an illusion because that's impossible because I can't travel in infinite space. Two truths. One, you can walk from one side of the room to the other. You all did it today. Two, you didn't really do it. 
It's an illusion. Now, you might say, well, let me just blow this thing out of the water, walk right over here from the other side of the room, and now I will touch the wall, and now I have traveled all the way from one side of the room to the other. One problem. According to physics, we all know that our bodies are made up entirely of atoms, right? Even the little bitty cells break down into atoms. Atoms make up the cells. Atoms make up everything. We all know what atoms look like. They are a nucleus of neutrons and protons surrounded by orbiting electrons, right? Electrons all have a negative charge, and every atom is orbited by electrons. All inanimate objects, as well as living objects, are created with atoms. So scientifically speaking, the truth of the matter is, you can reach out and touch that wall, and you can feel like you're touching it, but the electrons on your finger are repelling the electrons in that wall, and that force is too great for you to actually touch anything. You've never actually touched anything ever. You're not actually sitting on your seat right now. You are hovering. That's the truth. It might feel like you're sitting on your seat, but what's happening is that force from the seat pushing against the electrons in your dairy air and the electrons in your, in your dairy air pressing against, pressing against your seat. I should have chose a better word. I feel weird saying that. Uh, pressing against the seat, they create a certain force and sensation that make you feel like you're touching the chair, but really you're just pressing electrons down to it and they're pressing back. Now, the concept of texture is a whole other concept, but you can think of it in these terms, where there are dips and crevices in, in, in wood and metal and, and, and cloth and whatever, the electrons dip down with the crevice, and so they appear to have different levels of force, which they kind of do, but at the same time, that texture is also an illusion. So even though you think you walked from one side of the room to the other, you're not able to finish that last uh, whatever nanocentimeter of force between the electrons in your finger and the electrons in the wall, so you actually haven't arrived there, and you never will. That's the truth. Speaking from a level of physics. Why is that important for today's message? Well, it's interesting because God is infinite and the Bible says in him do we live and move and have our being. And certain of your poets have also said for we are also his offspring. So I'm going to come to a, a bigger point in sharing all that with you. But first, I want to tell you a couple of other truths that little portion of physics I just share with you involves the sensation of touch. But the same thing is true for the sensation of sight. What you think you're seeing, you don't actually see. Because your sensation of sight is based on photons from light beams bouncing off of solid objects or the force of the electrons and creating a reverse image actually in your eyeballs that your brain then has to flip from upside down to right side up and give you the sensation of seeing what you think you're seeing, but in reality, you've never seen anything. The picture that you're seeing in front of you right now, me and my, you might think, ridiculous ensemble, standing up here preaching to you, moving around back and forth, that's all happening in your brain. You're not really seeing that out in front of you. You can't. The same thing exists for the sensation of smell, taste, hearing, Everything, when it breaks down to a microphysical level, a quantum mechanic level, the truth of the matter is these are all senses attributed to your flesh and blood. But at the base of it all, you're not a flesh and blood being. You are a being of force. You are a being of force. You have an energy. You have a spirit about you. 
And I'm talking about the spirit that the Bible's talking about. I'm not talking about some weird new agey thing. Your spirit is alive. The Holy Ghost lives in you. Let me tell you, like, this is crazy. This is crazy if you think about it. And then we'll get back to, uh, we'll get back to the, the message and where we're going with this. The Bible says that Jesus Christ, who was formerly in a fallen flesh and blood state like you and I, let me just ask you this. You know how God made everything, right? And you know how we've kind of figured out that God made everything he made for a reason and he made it like he made it for a reason. Uh, well, is being in a fallen state, is that a negative thing or a positive thing? Negative. And what charge are electrons? Now, when Adam and Eve were first created, the Bible says they were surrounded with light. At the base of light, the particles that make up light are photons. And in photons, there's not necessarily a charge always present, but there's a possibility of positrons, which do exist. So there's a possibility that at the beginning, what they were clothed with on the outside was not a negative force, but a positive force. What's interesting about that is that after Christ and his likeness of flesh and blood, which is a negative force, died and was resurrected, he was in a glorified body. Everybody say glorified. glorified. So what's the difference between this body and a glorified body? Well, they locked the door to have a prayer meeting, and before they knew what happened, all of a sudden Jesus walked through the wall, and they didn't know how that happened. Well, guess what does not repel electrons? Positrons. So if your body was made up of positrons instead of electrons, you could walk right through that wall, scientifically speaking. To me, that's a little bit mind-blowing because I think the fallen state is negative. The glorified state is positive. So maybe in our glorified bodies, instead of having atoms that are orbited by electrons, we have atoms, interestingly enough, atom, first atom, last atom, first man, atom. We named them atoms. Probably just a coincidence surrounded and orbited by positrons instead of electrons and we'll have the ability to walk right through walls touch for the first time taste for the first time feel for the first time smell for the first time see for the first time have you ever watched the matrix when neo first woke up and he asked morpheus kids couldn't get any more nerdy please edit this off of the thing when neo asked morpheus why do my eyes hurt? And he said, because you've never used them before. Because everything that he thought he'd experienced up to that point in his life was an illusion. He was plugged into a system. And he thought he was seeing things. He thought he was tasting things. He thought he was hearing things. But he had never really used any of that. It was all an illusion. I want to submit to you in your fallen state, in your negative state, everything that you think you've done, Everything that you think your senses have experienced, it's all an illusion. You're seeing through a glass darkly. And when we move on from our childlike state of this world and our flesh and blood is real, and we move on into an adulthood state of approaching God in an infinite realm and believing. Now, how could you question miracles after you realize what we just talked about? It's a miracle that you think you've ever experienced anything. It's all an illusion. In other words, the Red Sea staying together, that's an illusion. The Red Sea coming apart, that's actually more real. In other words, somebody being able to see is an illusion. Somebody being blind is actually a little bit more real. So then when the one with the power of the real and the unreal lays hands on a blind man and gives him his sight, he hasn't, it's not, it's, it's not as un believable as we before thought it's more real than what we thought was real god is more real than you are 
The kingdom of God is more real than the earth. The kingdom of heaven is more real than the solar system because you've never seen any of that stuff. You think you have, but you haven't. However, if you've ever been in the presence of God, you've had a glimpse through a glass darkly. You've had a glimpse of reality. You've seen more than the average person in a split second of being in God's presence. And we walk around going, it's so unbelievable when God does a miracle. I want to slap people and say it's unbelievable when he's not doing miracles. (laughs) Let's move on from our childlike sense and move on into an adult grown up sense of relating to God. I want to ask you this this morning in proximity part three. Can you relate? Can you relate? Philemon chapter one, verse 20 says, according to my earnest expectation, this is Paul. Paul said something amazing in the Bible. He said, it's given to me to understand all mysteries. So you needed to go ahead and assume you're hearing from a man who has realized what is real and what is not real. And he says, my earnest expectation inside of what I now know to be real My hope that in nothing shall I be ashamed, but with all boldness as always. Now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or whether it be by death. For to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Well, that makes a lot more sense now that I realize here, while I feel like I'm alive, I've never really experienced anything. And the only way to get over to the realm of true experience is through this doorway called death. And so it's really a gain for me to get rid of this mortal body that has a bunch of these illusions uh, that we call five senses that have never really done me any good and walk from the electron to the positron and feel and see and touch for the very first time. Paul said, that is my great expectation. And I want to ask you, can you relate? To live is Christ, to die is gain. How close are you to God? Can you relate to that? What is your proximity? The Bible says greater is the day of one's death than the day of one's birth. The Old Testament tells us that. So my question to you is, can you relate? Can you relate? How close are you to God? Romans chapter 8 verse 28 says, We now know that all things work together for good. To those that love God. Can I replace that word good with positive? We now know that all things are working toward the positive. For those that love God. Do you believe that? Can you believe that your near death experience, that your botched attempt at suicide, that you're almost divorced or you're fully divorced? That the death of somebody, the life of somebody, the words of somebody, the silence of somebody else. Can you believe that all of these things are working to the positive? Can you relate to that? Can you understand that God is the only one that can take a group of human beings that are orbited by a negative force called electrons and take everything they do and gear it towards the positive, towards the positron towards the kingdom of God, towards the Holy Spirit, it gives me a whole new motivation to want to be baptized in the Holy Ghost. That's the only way I'm getting that positron on the outside. I want it on the inside for sure, because, I mean, that's salvation. 
But after that, can I get a little bit on the outside? I'd like to. Baptism of the Holy Ghost. All things work to good for those that love God and are called to his purpose. Now we're talking about electrons and positrons. I want you to throw that off. That's, I want that to throw you off. Those are human creations, those words. Okay, not the particles, but the words. And they weren't even created by cool people. They were created, they, you'd be, the scientists, what they should do, they should take all their findings to like Comic-Con or somewhere and let people with imaginations that know how to, how to make things cool, like name the stuff, you know, instead of electron. Well, I don't know, Bob, what does it do? Well, it has an electrifying force and it's really small. Let's call it an electron. Well, that's exciting. What about this one? We'll call it a positron. Wow, that's amazing. How'd they pick those words? I don't know. When we get to heaven, they're probably called something a lot cooler than that. Science doesn't do very well trying to be cool. And I'm going to talk to you real briefly as we talked about relating to God and the theory of relativity. In a nutshell, what the theory of relativity kind of denotes is uh, Einstein proving that the backdrop of space of the universe is not a flat, um, unaltered backdrop, but that it's a curving, uh, like, a, like a curtain. And like, think about it like a curtain lay, laying flat this way, and then you drop those little planets in there. Everywhere that you drop a planet, it pulls the curtain down into like a circular thing. You've been to the museum where you drop a, a penny in the deal and it travels in that big cone thing all the way down. Okay, that's what happens to the fabric of the universe when a, when a mass object is inserted into it, like the sun or a planet. You can't see it, but around that, uh, around that object, there is that circular conical thing that happens to the fabric of the cosmos. And so what I, how Einstein proved that uh, was really the, the, the best um, experiment they did was during an eclipse of the sun. And what they did was measure the distance of stars away from the sun before the eclipse and then after the eclipse because the light would have to bend around that conical shape in the cosmos, drop the planet in, and we measure everything by light. But the light would have to bend and curve just like the penny bends and curves all the way to the bottom. So that's how they measured it. Well, when the light is blocked out, how far away are the stars really appearing? And they did. They worked out the math, and it all worked out right. Long story short, E equals MC squared. There you go. Now you know. Don't use that answer on an exam. It won't work. But E does equal MC squared. That's the theory of relativity. What that means to me and you is the reason I want to even bring it up when we're talking about proximity part three, through a glass darkly, how we relate to God. The way that we relate to God is through his word. And that's how he relates to us. So when you see that Bible sitting on the coffee table or the bookshelf or the seat of your car or whatever, God has given you the ability to go ahead and determine what the weight of that thing is in your life. The Bible is a weighty matter. It's heavy. But you get to determine the mass of that object because it's just a book. It's not the weight of the leather and the paper. It's the weight of the words, the weight of the words. And that's up to you. They only carry the weight that you allow them to carry. They're only as massive as you give them credit for. The more credit you give to that thing, the more attention you give to that thing, that word of God, the more that it means to you, the heavier it becomes. As it becomes heavier, it begins to pull the fabric around you inward into that conical shaped device. And we're talking about God's force of gravity and electromagnetism that he set out there for a reason. 
You want to go just a slight bit deeper real quick? Or your head's done with science today? <laughs> okay. Einstein studied really two other scientists. A guy named Michael Faraday and a guy named John Clerk Maxwell. And he studied their work on electromagnetism. One thing that they did was they took shards of iron, they chopped them up really small, and they set them a certain distance away from a powerful magnet. And then they mapped out the path that the shards of iron took towards the magnet, and they realized it was a predetermined path every time. It was the same path. So they realized there was a force at work that they hadn't seen before called the electromagnetic force. What Einstein later realized from their work is that light is one wave on inside of that huge force called the electromagnetic force. And that one wave carries the right chemical composition, a.k.a. photons, that react with the cones in your eyes to give you the sensation of sight. But it's just one little wave on a huge thing that keeps the entire universe together called the electromagnetic field. Why is that important to me and you? Because the Bible says that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. In other words, Christ said, I am the light of the world. I am that one wave inside of that huge force of God that gives you the ability to see him. And I am the word of God wrapped in flesh. And if light travels a predetermined path that is altered by the weight of the gravity of an object, then the gravity that you give to the word of God will determine the path of your light to the world and your ability to see him. If God created the universe for a purpose like that, which I think he did. Electromagnetic force, by the way, if your left bicep was gravity, your right bicep would have to stretch to the edge of the known universe to represent how much more powerful electromagnetic force is than gravity. The most powerful force in the universe. I think that's a great representation of God. Now we covered kind of a lot of information. What I want you to walk away with this morning is we're, we're done with our proximity series I want you to think about how close have you drawn to God as far as spatial recognition. In other words, the way that you'll know that you've drawn close to him is you feel and you've gone through a certain brokenness. If you haven't been broken before him, you haven't gotten as close as you can. Secondarily, how close are you to his timing? If you're praying a prayer... If you have a desire on your heart, if there's something you're looking for from God, all you can do is walk along that chronological time scale until that Kairos moment hits. But when it hits, you've got to cross over that Jordan like the children of Israel. Don't be afraid of the fight inside the promised land. Do you know what he's called you to do? Do you know that you've skipped over it? Do you know that you haven't answered it? Because it's coming back around again. Recognition. Part three, how close are you to him relationally? That's today. Does the word of God relate to you? Does the nature of God relate to you? Do you think in reverse? Do you think backwards? Have you ever really said, I need more money, so I'm going to give more money? And if you think I'm telling you that means you give more money to Edgewater, you need to come back a few times. You don't know us very well yet. You don't have to give it here. That's not our goal. That's not our thing. Give it to somebody that needs it. Give it to the church if you want, because we definitely have things we can do with it. But just give if you need to receive. Do you need a promotion at work? Have you thought maybe if I do more of the menial tasks, I'll get more of the big tasks? Do you think in reverse? Does the word of God relate to you? 
the more you can relate to that, the more weight and the more gravity that you give it, the more Kairos moments you'll fall into, the more Kairos moments you'll fall into, the more brokenness you'll experience with him, the more brokenness you experience, the more reshaping and remolding you can go through and the more you'll be like him in his image. And then maybe one day when we see him face to face, we won't look all that different. Amen.